This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books and Geography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host for today, Stentor Danielson, from the Department of Geography, Geology, and the Environment at Slippery Rock University. Today, I'll be talking to Mike Owen Benedictson, author of In the Midst of Things, The Social Lives of Objects in the Public Spaces of New York City, published this year by Princeton University Press. Dr. Benedictson, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stentor. To start off, why don't you tell our listeners a bit about your background and how you came to write this book? Uh, Yeah, so um, I am an urban sociologist. I'm at Hunter College in in New York City uh, in the the sociology department there. And um, this book sort of uh, came together um, through a variety of projects that I was working on separately. These were projects that were focused on... um, different aspects of, of infrastructure in urban environments, um, particularly, um, particularly uh, roads and, 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 and car and automobile-oriented infrastructure, um, but also uh, mass transit in cities and, to a lesser degree, housing. And I just, in all of these different projects, I, I just started to get this sense that um, we, we were missing something in our sort of conventional sociological accounts of these different areas of urban life. And, um, and, and, and what we were missing, I think, you know, is to a degree was really captured by, by Bruno Latour and, um, and actor network theory is the, 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 the material dimension, the, the role of the social role of, of objects. Um, but, you know, I, and, and I, I do draw on Latour in, in the book, um, but at the same time, I, I, I felt like we, we were missing an opportunity to really both apply those ideas and then to expand them and take them in new directions and bring in other ideas from other um, dimensions, other schools of, of social theory uh, that pay close attention to materiality and to objects and to just create a sort of richer account of social life in cities and in suburbs that accounts for the, the really important role that objects play in, in our lives. Yeah, and you say in the book that each object has basically an imagination of what kind of people it expects to 
interact with it. I forget exactly the, the wording you used. Um, can you talk a little bit about that idea about the way that objects kind of presume things about people? Sure. Yeah. I, um, I, I quote uh, Thomas Guerin, um, an article by Thomas Guerin in, in the book, where he, he, he says that you know, architects necessarily theorize about society. The architects, um, designers, urban planners, even engineers and sort of bureaucrats in, in, in government offices um, who control this sort of standards and, and guidelines and rules and regulations for the ways in which objects are used. All of those actors are actually social theorists. They just don't, they don't th- necessarily think of themselves as such. And the reason for that is that they're sort of extrapolating from, from their, their knowledge of social behavior and hypothesizing about a future that they're trying to bring about through their work, through their profession, um, through their design, through their manipulation of the material world. They're trying to bring a world into being. This is not necessarily at all a utopian endeavor, right? And I don't mean to make it sound like that, although it can be, right? Um, in the case of, again, the, the people who control the New York subway system, um, this is a very utilitarian sort of a constrained type of social theory because they are operating under severe limitations, material limitations, budgetary, financial, political, and so forth. And they're just trying to make sure the system doesn't break down, that it continues to work. That's the hypothesized future, right? Is one in which the subway system just works. Um, But if you look closely at how they're manipulating the material world, they're applying a form of social theory. There are assumptions about human behavior that are that are built into um, the objects that they're manipulating and that they're actually sort of applying. Those ideas about human behavior that are sort of embedded and thought and cognition, right, um, that are embedded in objects, I'm not the first person to recognize these by any means. Um, they've been referred to as affordances. They've been referred to as scripts. Uh, programs by by different theorists and operating out of different um, perspectives and in different schools and different disciplines. Um, but uh, you know, I think to a degree, my book is is really unique in that it puts them at the center of the of the analysis um, and really looks very closely at at those ideas that are are in objects that are you know those assumptions about you that are in every object that you use all the time. That we um, that we don't necessarily think about, but that really have a role in shaping our behavior for better, for worse, um, for empowerment or for constraint, mar- marginalization, for domination, power. All of that is 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 in the material world, and and where it is is in these ideas um, that shape the the design and the planning of built spaces. Yeah, and I think a lot of what you're saying there about about objects and design, you know, that could be applied to all kinds of different objects. So why did you choose to focus specifically on the ones that are part of public spaces in the city? Well, I mean, part, yeah. So part of it was that, you know, the, 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 my, I had a pre-existing interest in public space, right? And that's, um, as an urban sociologist, I was interested in sort of the 
the public realm and 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 parks and plazas and street corners and and all of that. I mean, there's just a very kind of rich history of of analyzing and thinking about these spaces historically. And there's a really good sort of philosophical argument for why we should look closely at those spaces because they're sort of the material embodiment of the public realm more generally, a more sort of like a kind of philosophical space in which um, expression can occur unencumbered, in which you can encounter strangers and and in which you're 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 exposed to a much broader kind of cross-section of 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 social life so there was kind of a i had a i i think by virtue of my education my training my background i was predisposed to look at those spaces but once i started really thinking and you know focusing on the ideas that are designed into objects and you know i i came across something that i thought was really interesting is that you know the objects in your in your home like your personal possessions um, they have ideas about you specifically that are designed into them and in many cases those ideas um, were generated in focus groups you know or or by product designers who are really trying to sell commodities um, to, to to people they may or may not um, reflect your life accurately, your needs, your desires accurately. Ultimately, they're designed to be purchased. Um, but this is the thing. Their hypothesized um, audience, if you will, is is you. These are personal possessions. If we move out of the home, out of private domestic space, and into public space, then the audience is the public. And that's a really important shift and a very interesting shift because now um, the, 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 sure there, there's absolutely um, really important social and sociological and political implications to objects that are in personal homes. And a number of people have, have, have shown that um, about uh, anthropologists like Daniel Miller and um, Dolores Hayden, Gwendolyn Wright, others who have looked at, you know, the role of gender in, in domestic suburban space in particular. Um, but when you move out into the public realm, the objects have to have hypotheses, working theories about the public writ large, the collective. And that's different. That, you know, that brings a, in my mind, it, it, it imposes a, a, a necessary politics at all times in every, in every space pertaining to inclusion and exclusion accessibility, usability, um, and so forth. And so I ended up focusing on objects that are in public spaces. Um, and, uh, and I also ended up focusing on objects that make trouble that are sort of controversial or that, um, that are used in ways that are unanticipated by their designers or that sparked controversies when they were being designed. Okay, so that's a, a good segue into the next question where I want to bring us down from you know, these big abstract questions into looking at some of the specific objects that you write about in the book because you've got your main six chapters each about a particular object, including there's a lawn in Brooklyn, Jersey barriers on a highway median, there's a bench in Trump Tower that you talk about. So can you tell us about how did you choose those particular six uh, case studies to focus on. 
Sure. I, I sort of, um, what I ended up doing was I ended up sort of toggling back and forth between the material world and, and, and sort of political and social controversies about, um, aspects of urban planning at a localized level, actually really sort of debates about, about public spaces. And in this way, I eventually settled on an object that I could look at in some detail and that would help to sort of tell me things um, about that controversy, about that debate, about the, the problems or the conflicts that were occurring more generally concerning the places and the spaces where the, those objects were embedded. So it was kind of, um, it was kind of a, it was, it was a, a form of kind of detective work, I guess, that was happening on two, on two dimensions at the same time where I was, I, I was looking at newspaper articles and scholarly articles and, um, you know, the, the, the minutes of public meetings and so forth and thinking, okay, there's something really interesting going on pertaining to, um, to public space for sort of passive leisure use to pedestrian plazas throughout New York city. And the DOT, the city has been creating more of these and everywhere where they're creating these plazas, you see there are these little kind of political firestorms at a local level that are, that are there and they're, they're different. They're different in every place, but they have common elements. And, you know, this is, this is interesting and it's important. Um, but what, what's at the heart of this? And then at the same time, I'm looking at the kind of material elements of these plazas to try to understand, you know, how those debates and those controversies are being kind of triggered um, in, in part by, by material aspects of the built spaces in question. And I ended up settling on, on, on the folding chair. We, these folding chairs, sort of small steel, um, brightly colored folding chairs were being, were part of the, the, the NYC DOT's um, furniture, street furniture that they were uh, installing in new, newly created public plazas throughout the city. And th- the really uh, divergent feelings and emotions that were generated by the prospect of just basic sitable public space were focused in on, on these objects and just the affordance, again, the program or the, the social idea that's captured in them, which is just a place to sit. Um, and I think over and over, you know, what you see in the book and what I saw in my research is that, um, it's like, you know, the, it's almost the, the more, the more mundane, the social action involves the, the harder it is to really make that link, but between the material and, and its social and political repercussions, because what's, what's more basic, more fundamental than like sitable space than seating seat in a seating area a place to just sort of sit down but um you know by not by sort of moving past that right to other controversy other sources of of friction uh we miss what's really at the essence which was and you know again and again in these different 
plazas where I saw very different outcomes of this political process, um, there was the, the, the focus was just the prospect of people staying in one place, right? In the city, the, the landscape of New York and the public spaces is characterized by constant dynamism, by movement, transience, right? Um, people are always moving from one place to another. And what this program was doing, and I'm just using it as an example, was interrupting that flow and providing a place for people to sit. And that proved to be tremendously consequential um, for business owners locally, for elected officials, for regular people who use these public spaces. Um, so this is kind of an example of what I did in case after case, which was to, to hone in on an object that was making trouble and then to kind of tease out, well, why, why, what are the social ideas that are in this object that are causing trouble and, 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 and why and how? Um, and so the subject of the book, you know, really is that it's that connection between the material world and the social world. Um, that's why the book is called in the midst of things. Um, so it's, yes, it's about objects, but it's really about, you know, what happens when those objects are sort of viewed and understood and perceived and then acted upon, uh, in, in often unforeseen ways. Yeah. I was really interested in the section you did on the subway door as an object because it's one of those like you know i had never really thought about that even though i've i've ridden a number of different subway systems and i hadn't realized just how many different like door closing technologies had been tried over the years trying to hit the right balance of enabling the system to run smoothly not causing like accidents when people insist on trying to hold the doors open um so can you talk a little bit more about the, the subway door and how it, how it illustrates that give and take between the, the people and the object? Sure. Um, and I think that, you know, if, if you have listeners who have ridden subways in other cities apart from New York, as I'm sure you do, then this might come as no surprise. But uh, subway doors in their design and their technology have very different sort of uh, assumptions about about human behavior designed into them. Um, I've heard, I've never ridden the subway in, in Moscow, but I've heard um, that the doors clo- close there very strongly. They're powered by, um, by, by, by pneumatic tubes that they close so hard that they bounce back open, you know, with the force. And, you know, if you've ridden the subway in New York City, then you know that it's, you hear a little tone that tells you that the door is closing. Um, then they close, they have, you know, these rubber edges on them. If you um, try to stop one of those doors with your hand or your foot, um, it'll apply some force, but then it will eventually kind of release and open a bit. And then it often might try to close again, or typically it will. Um, none of this is arbitrary, right? None of those details are arbitrary uh, in those moments of interaction and contact between people and subway doors in the case of New York City. Um, and what's happened here, and this is really, I think, the subject of this chapter about the subway door, is that you have an ongoing uh, interplay, a back and forth or a struggle, if you will, 
um, between the requirement of the subway system that it be sort of efficient, expeditious, that it that it run on time, and the needs and desires of individual subway riders and the subway ridership as a collectivity. Um, now, if I arrive on on the subway platform and the sub, and the train is very crowded, um, I might try to just force my way on, and I'll be in the door, and the door will be closing on me, and I'll be holding it open, and so forth. There's something going on here, right? Um, maybe I'm late, and somebody holds the door for me, right? What's happening is that my subjective um, sort of consciousness, my, my subjective desire to get where I'm going is conflicting with the needs of the co- collectivity to get where it's going as manifested in that door closing technology. And so this has repeatedly caused problems over the years, over the decades. Um, the New York subway system for well over a century now has been constantly tweaking and modifying the doors that are used on, on, on the trains in order to make them harsher and more coercive, uh, to make them enforce the schedule, the timetable more strongly. And then when they actually injure people or drag them to death, as happened with a lot more frequency than it does now in the 1970s, um, they then kind of dial back on the coerciveness. And they do this through technological means by changing the actual mechanism that closes the doors, by how it responds to an obstruction, uh, by how it alerts the, the conductor of the train and then what the conductor can do in response. And, um, and so what you have is you have a, a, like a normative system, a technology that is responding to um, social norms um, and, and human behavior. And that's on one hand, trying to be coercive and to constrain and to, to, to punish the door holders and exclude them. Um, the latecomers to the subway, but on the other hand, that that can't that you know cause serious injury. That doesn't doesn't want to. That doesn't hopefully doesn't need to. Um, so in the in 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 that uh, chapter, there's a whole section where I I kind of trace the different you know technologies that have been used from the so-called worm gears that close the doors now to previous pneumatic systems and sensitive edges that detected obstructions uh, and then the you know the 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 deliberation about how wide those obstructions needed to be the transit official back in i believe it was the 1940s who stuck his nose um in 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 between the edges of a closing door in order to to illustrate that it how gentle it was um so there's a, an interplay here between human behavior and 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 social norms and uh, and the kind of utilitarian, uh, you know, um, imperatives, bureaucratic and chronological, and so forth that that are embedded in the subway system um, and its timetable. 
Yeah, and so the the decisions about those kind of things about changing the door mechanisms and stuff in in that case it's kind of being made by the the people in charge of the subway system but in a number of your other cases there's a big role played by public participation where the policymakers have like community forums and work with neighborhood groups and stuff uh, to make these design decisions so what can your book tell us about the role played by this kind of public participation uh, in urban life and in you know what's what's good what's bad when does it work when does it not work yeah i mean um so there there are a couple of the case studies in the book um the the chapter about pedestrian plazas and the folding chair and also the one about the lawn in brooklyn bridge park um you know that a, a couple of the case studies do really focus on on objects that were partly informed by and spaces and places that were informed by participatory um, planning to varying degrees, um, which is I don't want to call it in I don't want to call it in vogue because that sort of I think trivializes it. It's it's becoming much more much more common, right? And and for for good reason. Um, historically, the processes by which urban spaces were designed and planned was much more top-down and um, much more driven by, you know, the, these imperatives, uh, economic growth, um, efficiency, safety, and, you know, so forth, um, as conceptualized by, by powerful urban planners and bureaucrats as well as to a lesser degree politicians elected officials and you know over the last few decades um the the door has really been opened to especially in new york city to um to to community-based planning and in general i i mean in general i think that's a good thing um but that's not actually um a claim that's made in the book and it was uh, to be honest it was a bit it was difficult at times to to be the sort of to 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 be objective and to look at these processes um and and just try you know as they occurred without that sort of um that that kind of bias towards democratic and participatory and community-based uh, planning processes. What I found in the book and what the book has to say about this is really that they are inherently um, unpredictable. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess maybe that's the point, but uh, of, the, uh, of, of these processes in the first place. But I think that you know the architects, engineers, um, planning agencies, city agencies, they have to have these ideas about how things will work. They have to have I- these ideas about how built space will affect the social life of the city, will affect the movement of people and things through the city, the the economy of the city, all of these you know, important dimensions of urban life. Um, And once you then take those ideas and 
you bring into play the ideas of a community, a neighborhood, a group of prospective users, a cross-section of the people who will be affected by the material form of built objects and spaces. There's a degree of entropy that gets introduced um, here that I think is, it seems to me inevitable. And I hate to generalize in that way based on a series of case studies. Um, but it, in the case of the pedestrian plazas, it was just fascinating to see it, the the range of different neighborhood level repercussions and, and, and responses to the same fairly modest uh, intervention in, in built space. And in the case of the lawn, which is the first chapter, the lawn in Brooklyn Bridge Park, you had um, a, a space that was in many ways kind of a, 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 a blank slate and, and in a, a fairly innocuous one, right? Just a, a public park, a green space on the waterfront where there had been a series of um, kind of largely abandoned warehouses, uh, sort of an industrial space. And uh, in the, the community-based planning um, process that, that shaped the design of that long lawn and the surrounding park, you saw this just tremendous level of of, of um, conflict and dueling aspirations and dueling visions and lawsuits and and um, friction between neighborhoods and between agencies and the and the community and so forth. And and in, in part, that's why I was so interested in in the lawn in that particular chapter is because we think of that. I mean, what what is more benign than just a patch of grass to do whatever people want to do on a patch of grass. And and yet it wasn't seen as benign at all. And if we look closely at the process behind that, um, that lawn, we, we find, you know, this tremendously interesting and fascinated and conflicted um, and ambivalent uh, kind of political um, process behind it. So, I mean, the object, the, the book doesn't, you know, the book, I don't think I have really strong recommendations for how these processes, you know, can go better or worse. Um, I didn't feel that that was my my role, and the way that I did the research maybe took me further from it because of a it's very fine grained focus on the objects and how they were used and and so forth. But one thing that I do really get a strong sense for, and that I do argue for, is that. Um, these processes are inherently kind of un, un, unpredictable uh, and, you know, for better or for worse. So I want to now ask about what the process of doing the research for this book was like, because it seems like you're kind of a largely ethnographic kind of approach. You also, you know, review documents and interviewed people and stuff. And you, you tell a lot of stories like you know you talk about you're hanging out at this bus stop along this highway and just like you know talking to the people that are coming up there to catch the bus and trying to cross this highway um and so i'm just wondering like what was the experience like for you of doing this research of you know focusing your attention on the objects and the people using them Right. So I, I started from um, from what I think of as a kind of conventional um, qualitative or, or, you know, somewhat ethnographic approach to 
um, to research on, on, on place and on cities. And I, um, I hung out in the places that were interesting to me and that I felt like, you know, um, had, had a, had a, a story to tell. And I started to learn more about them and I kind of refined my questions about those places in response to what I was learning. And, um, but I, I did this largely again by sort of, you know, hanging out in those places and, and, and talking to people and then, and then starting to look at, um, sort of archival sources, if you want to call them that, um, you know, the, the, the various, um, blueprints and plans behind, you know, according to which spaces were designed as well as lots of journalistic sources, particularly local, you know, sort of journalism, neighborhood blogs and local newspapers and things of that nature. And, um, and, and as I was doing this, I, (laughs) I just felt like, I felt like I was, um, I, I increasingly felt like I was kind of skirting around what I, you know, the, the heart of the matter, I, I guess you could call it. And then I like that I was, I was kind of tracing out the outlines of something interesting that I wanted to understand, but, um, but that I, I, I wasn't getting really directly at it. I was just kind of, you know, beating around the bush, walking around in circles around this thing. And, and then I think I'm trying to remember the first, I think the, um, the, the first object that I did this with was the traffic divider, I believe. Yeah. Um, so, cause I, I think I started that research before I started in the other chapters and, um, and finally what I did is I, there was a, a traffic divider in South Jersey and there's a whole, you know, chapter about, about, um, kind of the lack of pedestrian space in that, in, in that area of, of, um, of New York city's, um, surroundings. Um, I, I ended up just sort of like bringing this folding chair, like a, you know, a little picnic chair. And I set it up on the side of the road where there was this traffic divider. Um, and, and the reason why I was there was because the pedestrian fatality statistics that are kept by the state of New Jersey and that are logged um, told me that there had been a number of fatal traffic accidents involving pedestrians in that place. So again, this was an object that I, you know, this is a, a built space that I knew was causing trouble in some way. And all of, right, all of the objects in the book too. So I, but I, I couldn't really you know, get at how or why this built space was so problematic. And if you, what, what had I been doing? I've been talking to people and I've been reading, you know, I've been reading, um, the, the newspaper articles devoted to traffic fatalities there. I'd looked at the engineering, uh, manuals that the New Jersey department of transportation has that pertain to this type of space, County road, an arterial with, you know, traffic with speed limits, this sort and so on, so forth and so on. And I just felt like I wasn't getting at it. So I set up this folding chair off in the margins of the road there. And I sat there and I just stared at this traffic, this, this median for the, for, for an entire day. And what I saw was I I saw um, lots of people trying to cross this 
divided highway in this space. Um, and for them, the traffic median was an obstacle in the middle of a, um, in the middle of a, of a road crossing that was already dangerous and difficult, right? That was, the road is wide, the cars travel extremely fast, the lighting is you know, grossly inadequate uh, when it's early in the morning or, or, or late at night. Um, and then in the middle of this tremendously risky, hazardous um, path across the road, there is no path, right? That's the point. There's no crosswalk. There's no, you know, there's no traffic light. There's, you know, in the middle of it, there's this cement median, which is actually meant to protect automobiles from each other, right? The automobiles that are traveling different directions. And it's called the Jersey barrier, which is kind of ironic because I happen to be in New Jersey studying this. Um, but for the, the people crossing the road, the meaning of this object was that it was just, it added an additional level of difficulty and risk and inconvenience to what was already a difficult and inconvenient and risky, uh, course of action. And, so by watching this thing all day, I saw it like constantly. I mean, it's in my field notes, you know, it was like every, and now I have to go find them and see exactly what, you know, what is every half hour, 40 minutes, there's somebody like crossing and having to climb over this thing, right. In order to get to the other side on one side of the road there, um, there was a, um, a, um, budget motel and um, an auto repair shop and a couple other things. And the other side, there's like a little shopping center. So it was pretty clear that to people who didn't have an automobile who were having to go from one side of this road to the other. Um, and for them, you know, this object, which was designed not for them, right? The, the affordances, the programs of that object were designed for motorists, not for them. Um, the object had this perverse outcome, which, which was, leading to in, injuries and, and, and deaths in that particular space. And so the method um, that increasingly I started to rely on was one in which I spent a long period of sustained time just watching one object and just seeing, you know, once I had a feeling that this, is, this object or this space is causing trouble, then I would just camp out and I would just watch that object, um, which is, it has its own kind of rigor to it because it's tremendously boring. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, it's really tedious. And you're, and like, if you're, you know, an urban sociologist and an ethnographer, then you, you want so badly to be distracted by all of the other things that are happening away from the object. Cause like, there's all this other stuff going on. And you want to pay attention to that because it's interesting or, or, or whatever, but you can't because you need to just watch what's happening, you know, with your object, the object in question. Um, in the case of the folding chair that I was looking at in diversity plaza in, in Queens, it was, it was, it was horrible. I was looking at this chair all day. And I mean, granted the chair was used in all kinds of interesting ways throughout that, you know, this day of, of prolonged observation, but like, there's so much going on in that plaza. And most of the time, what was going on didn't at all involve the chair, but I couldn't get distracted by it anyway. So this, so I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm never going to be a, um, 
I'm never going to be uh, somebody who really strongly espouses one method over another. It's just not, I just don't have the confidence of conviction to be (laughs) that type of person. But I, um, but I, I felt like in this case and doing this kind of analysis where you, you're really interested in objects and sort of their social lives. I felt like this was a really good, you know, in the end, I felt like this was a really good approach and I would recommend it to other people who were interested in similar, similar kind of, uh, you know, research topics that, that where, you know, you, you were really interested in materiality and in how objects are used by people and how those objects shape and constrain human thought and behavior. Just, you know, just watch the object, but do it for a sustained time. And, um, because the whole thing is that you don't really know, you don't know what, how that object is going to be used. And so you have to be there for, you know, when the surprise happens or when the new information presents itself. All right. So as we're moving toward the end of our time here, I wanted to give you an opportunity to give a shout out or a thank you to anyone whose help was important to you as you were writing this book. Oh, that's, <laughs> do you, do you always do this in your podcast? This really, <laughs> we have enormous acknowledgement sections in our books, that, uh-huh. <laughs> especially the, you know, the first, the first, I've noticed this, that, right. That the first book that a uh, relatively junior, you know, scholar publishes, yeah, you feel like you have to thank everybody. So this in the acknowledgement sections end up running quite long. And so it's hard. It's, it's impossible. You know, I will say it's impossible. You know, I, I don't want to take up your listeners time to, to thank everyone. Um, then I will forget people and I'm sorry about that. Um, and, you know, and I forgot people in the acknowledgements. I already know, and I feel terrible about it. Um, but, uh, well the book, so yeah, I have to, you know, this is a book that owes a, a, a debt and uh, intellectual and sort of analytical debt to um, heavy debt to Harvey Mollich, um, who, you know, I was a mentor of mine and who, um, who pays, has paid very close attention to, to objects and what they do and don't do. And the people who, who shape those objects. It also, the book also has a, um, uh, you know, it's heavily influenced by um, Bruno Latour, and people should know that going in. It's not a, it's not an ant book. Um, it's, uh, it's not an STS book. Um, it's, it's very different. But, um, but I do want to make clear the sort of the influence that the ideas from those fields had on the book, and I want to, you know, be upfront about that for sure. Um, and then. Um, uh, and then, you know, the, the, the book was, um, you know, also, I, I think what, what I found in, in, in my research was that people, because obviously I did loads of interviews and talked, you know, just talked to lots of people as well. And that's, you know, you can't just watch the objects. Right. Um, and, um, what I found was that people were overwhelmingly, um, willing to talk to me and to share their ideas about the objects. And I think that to a degree, this is because they didn't perceive what I was studying as something that was necessarily controversial. I mean, to them, it probably seemed boring. These guys all got all these questions about, you know, the subway door, tra- traffic divider, you know, these mundane objects. Right. But, um, but they were really generous, I think with their, with their time and with their thoughts. Um, and, um, 
and you know, I think a lot of ethnographers, a lot of qualitative researchers, you know, they all have a, pet, a debt to pay to their informants, their subjects, the people who who who, who shared their time with them. Um, but um, but yeah, you know, I'm I'm no different in that regard. So yeah, it's a book about objects, but it's also to a large degree about people, and I have to thank the people who um, who spoke with me and um, shared their ideas and their experiences. And finally, we always like to end by asking what you're working on next. So what kind of projects are you taking up now that this book is out? So I've got two projects in the works, and one is a book about New York City's Penn Station and how it, um, how it came to be almost really universally recognized as the worst public space in America. That might be the name of the book. Um, I'm sure I, it's, I'm probably not supposed to use foul language on your podcast. Am I? Uh, no. You can drop a, a swear or two. I think that's all right. So the, the working the working title of the book is Anatomy of a Shithole, <laughs> because that's this is what you know Penn, Penn, how Penn Station has been described um, to me on multiple occasions, uh, and. Um, and so I'm interested in Penn Station, again, because it's a failure. It's a failed public space. And we have all of this research and literature on successful public spaces. Um, the, you know, the, um, the magisterial masterworks of urban planning and design and architecture and all of that. Um, we have a lot less on public spaces that are awful and that everybody hates and that make you feel debased and terrible just being in them for, for 20 minutes. And that's what Penn Station is. Um, so I've got a, a very embryonic project that's, um, that's focused on how that came to be. And then another project that's focused on, on fishing, very, very different topic, but one in which I'm going to, um, sort of bring that kind of the same analytical lens of kind of looking at the interplay between material objects and, and social life, um, to bear and, uh, but in, in a case where we're, we're not talking as much about built objects and urban environments and much more about nature. All right. Well, we'll be looking forward to both of those uh, projects. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I, I really enjoyed this. I appreciate it. This has been a conversation with Mike Owen Benedictson, author of In the Midst of Things, The Social Lives of Objects in the Public Spaces of New York City, published this year by Princeton University Press. Mm-hmm.